0: I would encourage you now to take your copy of God's Word and open it to the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 51. If you would, follow along with me as I read from God's Word. Beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who brought you forth through labor pains. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden in her desert, like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and a sound of melody. Pay attention to me. O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will hope in me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, and then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke. And the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who chopped Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of Yahweh will return. And come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting gladness will be on their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you, that you are afraid of man who dies, and of the Son of Man who is made like grass?" that you have forgotten Yahweh your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you tremble and dread and continually all day long because of the wrath of the one who brings distress as he makes ready to bring ruin. But where is the wrath of the one who brings distress? The one in chains will soon be set free and will not die in the pit, nor will his bread be lacking For I am Yahweh your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, You are my people. Awaken yourself. Awaken yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh, the cup of his wrath, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor nor is there one to take hold of her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will console you? The devastation and destruction, the famine and the sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, now, listen to this, you afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, Yahweh, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my wrath. You will never drink it again. I will set it instead into the hand of those who cause you grief, who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you. You have even set your back down like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. So reads the word of the true and living God. My soul clings to the dust, O Lord. Revive me according to your word. We have recounted your ways and you have answered us. Teach us your statutes. Now, Lord, we ask, make us understand the way of your precepts that we might muse on your wondrous deeds. Our souls weep because of grief. Raise us up according to your word. Remove any false way from amongst us and graciously grant us your law. We have chosen the faithful way. We have placed your judgments before us. We cling to your testimonies. O oh, Yahweh, do not put us to shame. We shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge our hearts, O oh, God. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we pick up again Isaiah's poetic prose as he works his way through. His exposition of the work of the servant, the gospel glory of Christ in Isaiah 40 all the way through chapter 66. And the last few weeks we have seen what some scholars have called the servant songs of Isaiah. Now these servant songs are typically sung by God himself or sung by Isaiah and they are sung about the servant. But today, in Isaiah 51, the song is not sung about the servant but is sung By the servant. And as Dr. Paul Plew has famously said, we should sing because Jesus himself sings. And he, of course, references the singing of the hymn before the disciples go to the garden. I would reference Isaiah 51. Christ does indeed sing, and that is what is in view for us this morning in Isaiah 51. How can we prove this? How can we prove that it's the servant who is being spoken of here? Take a look at verse one. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh." He, he says, "Listen to me." and then he references Yahweh in the second person, indicating that whoever is speaking here in chapter 51 is not Yahweh. You might assume that Isaiah is speaking, but given what the singer of this song says in the coming verses, we can deduce additionally that this son is no, or excuse me, this servant is no mere human. The singer of this song is not just a man, but is in fact God very God. Therefore, we can say with confidence that the voice who is singing this song in Isaiah 51 is not Yahweh, and is not Isaiah, but is Yahweh's divine servant, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Son of God. This song contains some of the most powerful Christological and soteriological truths in all of Scripture as it puts Christ forth and declares the salvation That he brings. My prayer for this morning is that we would see Christ in Isaiah 51. That we would see the glory of his gospel. That we would see his salvation. And because of these things that we would worship him. And because we have seen him and worshipped him. That we would be transformed into his image. As we pick up Isaiah 51. I want us to be aware of the covenantal language that is being used here. The servant here, as recorded by Isaiah, presents himself as a a kind of new Abraham who fulfills the covenant that God made with Abraham, a, a true and better and new Adam who fulfills all that Adam was supposed to bring to pass. He further presents himself later on as the true and better Moses, the one who brings God's people through the Red Sea of guilt and through the wilderness of this life and into the promised land, the heavenly Zion. With the covenantal context in mind, let's observe the text together as we see this covenant overture of the servant's symphony. What does the servant do? He first establishes his audience. Who are they there in verse 1, line 1? Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness and who seek Yahweh. That's the audience, those who are going to pursue righteousness, who are going to seek Yahweh. And we might look at this and say, okay, these are good people. This is a good thing. These are the people who are chasing after God, who are seeking after righteousness. And you might think, okay, well, the servant is preaching to the choir a little bit here. But that is not the way that Paul understood this type of pursuit of God and this type of pursuit of righteousness. Paul in Romans 9 says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, who did pursue a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. Paul's reading of Israel's pursuit of righteousness and pursuit of Yahweh, even all the way in Isaiah's day, was that this pursuit was in vain. Why? Because they were pursuing it on their own terms, not on the terms of faith. So what does the servant say to those who are pursuing righteousness? And if we understand Paul, it's a dogged, it's an aggressive pursuit. If that's what Israel's doing here in 51.1, how? How? Does the servant exhort these Israelites to pursue righteousness and seek Yahweh? What does he say? Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. What is meant here? This is a compelling word picture of Israel's origins. At first brush, we might just think, oh, this is just an interesting picture of rocks sort of being cut out of a quarry, like marble or stone or whatever, being pulled out of a quarry. But Isaiah is actually being very intentional here. He is subtly, but... Clearly, setting the people of Israel within a pattern that the apostle Peter makes explicit in 1 Peter 2. What does Peter say there? And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. What Isaiah and what Peter are saying together is that to seek Yahweh and to pursue righteousness is to be hewn like a rock from a quarry and being subsequently stacked one upon another, being built into this new covenant temple. That's what Peter has in mind there. The idea is not quite fully developed for Isaiah here in Isaiah 51. But the thought is still there. And so where do these stones come from? We talk about the living stones of 1 Peter 2, and we talk about these stones here in Isaiah 51. What's the quarry? Where do they come from? Look at verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who brought you forth through labor pains. The quarry from which these stones are hewn and drawn is the quarry of the faith of Abraham. Abraham. The servant is clear. Those who would pursue Yahweh can only do so as rocks hewn from the quarry of Abraham's faith. Now continue to look with me at the servant's song in the middle of verse 2. Who is the actor in Abraham's drama? When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and I multiplied him. The actor is the servant. He is the one who called Abraham, who blessed him, and who multiplied him. Now, verse 3. This would appear to be a break in the servant's song with Isaiah himself providing some commentary before returning to the song. So what does Isaiah say in verse 3? He describes to Israel the work that Yahweh, through the arm of his servant, will do at the end of all things. Indeed, what will Yahweh do? He will comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, he will make the wilderness like Eden, Will make the desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving, is a song of melody. So there's really two, or really three, couplets, three pairs of things here that we see. So let's make these three observations. What will the servant do for Israel at the end of all things? What is this work? First, it is a double comfort. Isaiah repeats himself for emphasis. Yahweh will comfort Zion, and He will comfort all of her waste places. We can rightly describe the covenant in view here in chapter 51 as a covenant of comfort, which is the name of our message this morning. Secondly, not only is it a double comfort, it is a restorative comfort. In other words, this, com- this covenant of comfort will bring Israel back to the peace and prosperity Of the Garden of Eden and this kind of adds a layer to this vineyard and garden theology that we've seen Isaiah developing chapter 5 chapter 12 chapter 6 um, some of these other places where Isaiah is developing this idea of Israel and God's covenant people as a garden or as a vineyard Israel's eternal purpose is to be the center of God's global new Eden as history moves forward toward eternity ironically It is actually moving backwards backwards toward the peace and prosperity of Eden only this time unlike the first Eden ruled by the first Adam the true and better full and final Eden will be ruled by Yahweh's servant the true and better the full and final Adam it is a double comfort it is a restorative comfort it is a joyful comfort Number three, the covenant of comfort in the new Eden is one that results in joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and song. There in the last, two, the last two lines there, that last pair in verse three. Isaiah has declared it before. We know that John will declare it again in Revelation. Listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 25. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice meat with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for Yahweh has Spoken That work of God that will take place in the end, the swallowing up of death, the wiping away of every tear, not just ought to, but must result in joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and song. The servant with Isaiah in tandem here in verses 1 through 3 established the major themes of this chapter. So what is here for us? What can we learn? What can we take away? we would grab onto. If you're a note taker, write these three points down. Number one, right pursuit of God is only accomplished by faith. Only by believing and receiving Yahweh's servant and all his benefits can we draw near to Yahweh himself. If we would pursue him, then we must pursue him with the faith of Abraham. Perhaps you are not near to the Lord this morning. Perhaps your heart is far from Him. Perhaps it has always been far from Him. Today is the day. Wait no longer. Believe in the servant with the faith of Abraham. Receive him. Worship him. He was the hope of Abraham. He was the hope of Israel. And He is the hope of all the world down to Every soul in this room today. I trust that many of you in the room today know and love Christ. You have tasted of His beauty and of His glory, His love and His grace. Do not be deceived this morning into thinking that while you began with Christ by faith, you now continue with Him by works. Abraham was not only saved by his faith, but he was sustained by his faith. The servant beckons us in the room this morning, all of us who know him and who love him. He asks us, he begs us, he urges us, look back to our roots, look back to the rock from which we were hewn, look back to the quarry, look back to Abraham, look to his faith. Abraham is our example this morning, not only for faith that justifies, but faith that sanctifies. That's number one. Right pursuit of Yahweh is only accomplished by faith. Number two, I thought I had three. I only have two this morning. Two things, two takeaways. Point one. Number two, Christ has always been the mediator of salvation. It's tempting to take the Old Testament a little too literally. And when we look through the Old Testament, we don't really see the name Jesus Christ mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't. We see other names like Emmanuel and the servant of the Lord and the servant of Yahweh and the arm and all of these things. It's easy for us to get tempted to go go in our minds, well, if Christ is not mentioned right there in the words on the page, if we don't hear the name Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that he isn't there, but Christ himself said, all the scriptures testify of me. And that is made clear here as Isaiah proclaims that the author of Abraham's salvation, this mediator of this very first covenant of grace, was not Yahweh the Father, but actually in Trinitarian distinction, Christ the Son. Therefore, we can say with confidence that Christ from the very beginning, even with Abraham, from the very beginning Christ has always been the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not Abraham, not Isaiah, not you, not me, comes to the Father apart from Christ. So here are the themes. Let's look at the first stanza of this covenant. Stanza number one, covenant immutability from verses 4 through 8. This first stanza establishes the immutability of the covenant of comfort. In other words, immutability, that's a theological word. Daniel, what does it mean? Immutability, it means that it can't change. It cannot change. It is fixed in time and space forever. It will not move. It will not break. It will survive into eternity. Again, the servant calls the people and the nations to listen to him. The servant speaks with the tone of King Solomon, imparting wisdom to his son in Proverbs 1 through 9, for the servant of Israel is also the king of Israel. What type of covenant is this? Described in four ways. The end of verse 4, a law will go forth from me, will set my justice for a light for the peoples. My salvation is near. Or my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth. Four ways that this covenant is described. The law that goes forth, justice that illuminates, righteousness that is near, salvation that goes forth. The end of verse 5, we see who the object is of the covenant of comfort is. It's not just the people of Israel. It's actually, what does the text say? The coastlands will hope in me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. If you're reading from the King James this morning, you might see that it's translated there as islands. The islands will hope in me. And the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was used by the apostles, translates this word with the same word that it uses for Gentiles. And both Mark and Luke quote this passage this way in their Gospels. The point is this, the covenant of comfort described here in Isaiah 51, mediated by the servant, is not merely a covenant for those who were hewn from the rock of Abraham in a natural or physical sense. Hewn from the rock of Abraham's flesh, as it were, but also for those who were hewn from the rock of Abraham's faith, regardless of where they come from or what their ethnic background is. The covenant of comfort is, is for all people. Jew, Greek, Gentile, right? Galatians 3, man, woman, slave, free, rich, poor. The gospel is for everyone. The coastlands, hope in the servant. Verse 6 takes a dramatic turn. Isaiah loves this colorful language. Listen to verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the sky, and then look down to the earth beneath. As you look up to the sky and as you look down to the ground with the servant, look to the future. What happens in the future? The sky that you see up here, it will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. The inhabitants of the earth will die in like manner. Let's pause here. There are some things in this life that we take for granted. Some of us might have lived in the same house for half a century. Maybe we worked the same job for 40 or 50 years and you drove the same route to that job on the road every single day. And none, maybe some things change, any new buildings go up, maybe things get torn down or whatever. But things that don't really change when it comes to our surroundings, we can, I, I love using that big stony point rock at the top of Topanga as an illustration. We I drive, I've driven past that thing multiple times a week for the last four years, and the thing has never changed. It's exactly the same for some of you that have lived in this area for a long time. You know, that thing's just kind of it's just always been here. Right? And we look at our surroundings, right? We might understand like people are transient. Right? People, people die, people pass on. But embedded in our minds, oftentimes we have this mentality that, like, okay, like I'm like, I'm transient. I'm like grass, like we'll see. I'm going to die, but somebody else will take my job. Somebody else will live in my house. Somebody else will drive my same route to work. Right? We might be transient, but the circumstances that surround us are not. And what Isaiah says here is even those circumstances are not eternal. Eventually, the sky will vanish, the earth will vanish, the inhabitants will vanish. That's everything. That's a whole universe. That's the whole creation The servant wants us to reflect on the fact that these things are transient. Even those things that seem to last longer than us and even last forever will all eventually pass away, whether by natural causes now or supernatural causes in the future. Yet for the servant that the, the transience of this earth serves simply as a contrast. It's a backdrop for what he really wants to say and that is this. The covenant of comfort and the salvation and righteousness that it brings are not transient. They will not move. They will not change. They will not shake. They will not pass away. They will last forever, verse 6, and they will not be dismayed. So again, the Servant calls his audience to listen, addressing them as people of the covenant who have tasted of the righteousness of the servant, who have had his law written on the tablets of their hearts. The servant's instruction is this. Verse 7, right there in the middle. Do not fear the reproach of man. Do not be dismayed at their revilings. For just as the land and the sea were transient, in verse 6, so in verse 8, the men who revile the servant, his covenant, and his people are also transient. Verse 8, the language is graphic. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. It's a graphic picture of what happens when men, even the most powerful men in the world, are one day buried and put in the ground. What happens? The grubs eventually feast. It's graphic and it's graphic on purpose. The servant wants us to understand with vivid clarity before our eyes that all of this stuff that we see around us will pass. This covenant of salvation will not it will outlive everybody. Got the, 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 the covenant of comfort will outlive all of the crazy civil authorities and all of the crazy things that we see in our world. Right? We can talk about whoever we want to talk about, president, vice president, governor, right, county commissioner, whoever we want to talk about, whatever crazy politician is out there, whatever crazy business person is out there who's on the mission to try and dominate the world or whatever, in the end, all of them, Biden, Harris, Newsom, Bill Gates, mention whatever name you want, they go in the ground. They are eaten by grubs. It's graphic, but it's true. What survives? The gospel of the servant arm of Yahweh. What does this mean for us? The unchangeability of this covenant, the immutability of this covenant. A couple of things. Number one, the servant's immutable covenant of comfort gives us confidence. Confidence. In a world like ours, it's easy to be uneasy, it's easy to worry, it's easy to be anxious. Those are our natural inclinations when evil people rule over us in our land and false teachers and wolves lurk within our churches. Yet the servant's encouragement to you this morning is to be strong and of good courage, for his covenant is immutable. As certain and as eternal as the created order might seem to be to us, The covenant of comfort is even more certain and is truly eternal. As difficult and as discouraging as it might be even today to face the world as they mock us openly and as they spit upon us for our faith. The servant says that these things will pass away but his salvation lasts forever. It gives us confidence. Secondly, it gives us assurance Perhaps even more difficult than our external circumstances is our internal struggle with sin and with the flesh. We fail and we fall, even as those who have tasted of the glory and beauty of the servant and have believed in his gospel. Just because we receive him as Savior does not mean that we do not continue to battle our own doubts and our own fears and our own sinful tendencies. And that may be you this morning, struggling with something inside a sin, a doubt, a fear. If that's you this morning, the servant, Jesus Christ, has a word for you this morning. Take heart. My covenant of comfort stands. It stands eternally, and it stands by my power. Not yours. He says, my yoke is easy my burden is light. Do not fear, do not doubt, for I will carry you. I will comfort you. My covenant will not change because I will not change. It gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. It gives an ominous omen for the wicked those who revile and reproach Yahweh, his servant and his covenant people will be eaten like a wool garment. This is a terrifying and sober indictment upon many in our nation and in our world today. The servant's word of warning is this, you may make a mockery of me today, but according to Psalm 2, I will have the last laugh. Yahweh and his servant will not be mocked. Yes, God is patient even often for centuries with wicked empires and wicked men. But in the end, all earthly kings must kiss the sun or perish in the way. His anger will devour his opposition, whether by his natural means and methods now or by his own hand in the future. For the wicked and the evil, this passage serves as a terrible and awful warning. His covenant is immutable. It cannot change because Yahweh cannot change. And the servant who mediates it cannot change. Stanza 2, the covenant mediator, verse 9 through 11. Now, stanza two is on a technicality, not actually a stanza that is sung by the servant. It's an interjection. It's an interlude that comes from Isaiah. It's Isaiah's comment on the song. But nevertheless, it has a place in this song, and so we will treat it as its own stanza. Here then we see Isaiah extolling the servant as the mediator of the covenant of comfort, and he does so by portraying the servant as a new Moses leading his people into a new exodus. What does he say? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Verse 9, he's crying out to the servant. And and the the implication here is that Isaiah feels some sort of a personal or a corporate distance from God, that, that he's crying out in his heart, God, come to my aid. Yahweh, arise, the arm of Yahweh, arise and come to my aid. Awake, awake. Isaiah understands the hope of the servant and therefore calls upon him to awake and to once again do for his people the same work that he did for them in the days of old. He invokes the history of the nation of Israel by recalling what Yahweh did for Israel in the Exodus and then actually appropriating or applying that work to the servant. Isaiah is saying the servant of Yahweh is the one who led Israel out. Of Egypt in the first Exodus. How do we know that from this verse? Was it not you who chopped Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now you might go, chopped Rahab in pieces? What does that mean? Wasn't Rahab the, 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 the prostitute who believed in Jericho and was saved, was the only person saved in Jericho? Yes, that is correct. You are true on that. But Rahab is also a euphemism for Egypt, and it's used multiple times in Isaiah as a reference to Egypt. And it also means That's like big R, Rahab, small R, Rahab. It actually just means like a dragon or a serpent. It's similar to Leviathan that we read about in Job. So what do we see here? The servant chops Egypt, chops Rahab to pieces and pierces the dragon. It's the same imagery there that this servant, as he's freeing Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, is slaying a dragon. This is kind of complicated. What does this mean? Let's, let's break this down real briefly for our understanding. Isaiah is indicating here that it is specifically the servant, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is acting in the destruction of Egypt in Exodus 13 and 14. We know the story, right? Ten plagues and eventually the firstborn sons die and Israel walks free. Moses makes no Trinitarian distinctions in his song in Exodus 15. He simply says, right, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. So on and so forth. But Isaiah shows us that it is, in fact, the servant of Yahweh who is at work in the destruction of Egypt. This is Christ, then, in his role as king and as judge, defeating his enemies and executing judgment on the guilty. This work of the servant in the first exodus looks forward to his work. In the second Exodus, we will look more closely at that in a moment. That's the first thing that we can see here when we see this phrase, right? Chopped Rahab into pieces and pierced the dragon. But secondly, and perhaps more starkly, we see a second observation. Isaiah is positioning the servant as the seed of the woman and Egypt as the seed of of the serpent. What do I mean by that? You might recall Genesis 3.15. We've discussed it on a number of occasions, both here and in Sunday school and on Thursday nights. It's a very important theme in God's Word. What does Genesis 3.15 say? I will put enmity between you and between the the woman. He's talking to the the, the serpent, Satan here. And between your seed and her seed, he, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him On the heel, this enmity between the serpent and the woman and both of their seeds, their descendants, is in view here in Isaiah's recollection of the Exodus. He equates Egypt with a mythical serpent dragon, the ancient representation of the devil and Satan himself, and he declares that the servant has destroyed Egypt, has destroyed the dragon, has destroyed the serpent. We can therefore rightly say that the Exodus serves as an ectypal fulfillment of the enmity God spoke of in Genesis 3. In other words, it teaches us about the future, what is going to happen in the future, something very similar to what happened in Exodus 13 and 14, which leads us to number three, our third observation. The servant's destruction of Egypt foreshadows his ultimate destruction of all his enemies. Isaiah's hope is that the promise made to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 will ultimately be fulfilled. Not only will the servant chop Egypt into pieces, he will chop all his enemies to pieces. Isaiah looks forward to both advents of Christ here, both comings. In the first coming of Christ, Isaiah sees here the resurrection of Christ in which the servant chops to pieces death once for all. And then in the second advent The second coming where Christ will fully and finally chop the servant into pieces as it were and cast him into the lake of fire and brimstone along with all the evil that the serpent brought into the world. This is the final fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The conquering, judging strength of the servant arm of Yahweh gave Isaiah hope and it gives us hope. Christ has conquered and will continue to conquer. And what's here for us, the servant shares his conquering power with us. Romans 6, 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a song I used to listen to in high school. It comes straight from God's word. We are more than conquerors through Christ. As Christ has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we'll continue to conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. We share in his victory. Take heart, take hope in that. Whatever you face, Christ is victorious over it. And if you are in him, you also are victorious over it. Not only then is the servant the king who judges, but he's also the shepherd who leads Verse 10, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Christ is the one who parted the Red Sea for God's people to pass through. The servant is not only a king then, but a shepherd leading and guiding his people. And Isaiah has this vision of Christ as a true and better Moses. Isaiah's hope is that just as the servant Christ and the servant Moses led God's people out of bondage and into the promised land in the past, so the servant Christ will do the same thing in the future. What we have seen before paints us a picture of what Christ will do again, and this is exactly what happened in the first advent as one of our favorite songs. You guys are going to know this as soon as I start reading it. Christ the true and better Moses called to lead a people home standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known with his arms stretched wide to heaven. Here's Moses. See the waters part in two. Here's Christ. See the veil was torn forever, cleansed with blood. We pass now through. Amen. Amen. From beginning to end. You guys know the song. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea and entered into the promised land, so also Isaiah's hope is that the servant arm of Yahweh will once again bear his strength and bring his covenant people in a new exodus to a new Zion. Listen to the two beautiful, precious words that Isaiah uses to describe us. This is us. This is, this is Israel in the Exodus. This is us today. Listen to these two words. I love, 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 love these two words. Made the depths of a pathway for the who? To cross over the redeemed to cross over so the ransomed of Yahweh will return. Aren't those words precious to us this morning that we have been redeemed, right? Like the old song says, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. These two words paint us the best and clearest and most precious picture of what God through Christ is doing for us in the new exodus, redeeming us and ransoming us, freeing us from our bonds of sin and shame. The question for every person in the room today is this. Are you walking out of Egypt in the new exodus? Are you part of what God through Christ is doing in freeing people from their bonds of sin, their bonds of shame, and walking in new freedom in Christ? Are you part of that this morning? All that you must do is simply believe in Christ, take up your cross, and follow him out of Egypt. And then what's our response? If we are walking in the new Exodus, what's our response from verse 11? Do we come with joyful shouting and everlasting gladness? Do we obtain joy and gladness and watch our sorrows and our sighing flee away? That's our response. There ought to never, ever be in the history of the world. I've said it before and I'll say it again. A dour, sad Christian who's going, wow, Eh, my life is really, really, really bad right now. Yes, I affirm. We've seen it in 1 Peter. We will suffer. Along the way, hard things will happen to Christians. I don't think there's a soul in the room this morning who hasn't had some of it happen to you. Suffering, persecution, trials, tribulations in this life. But what is in view here with what Isaiah says in verse 11 is that in the midst of all of the suffering, as Peter says, we look forward to the hope of glory. We know how this story ends What I am saying here is not that we won't suffer, but that if we are following Christ, the new Moses, we can suffer with a smile, we can groan with gladness. Why? Because we know that the funeral bells are already tolling for death and for sin and for sadness and for crying. Christ's resurrection is the seed, the first fruits of a new creation, one in which all of those things have passed away and there is nothing but joy. Do we walk in that joy now as we look forward to the joy of the future? Friends, let the joy of the servant be your strength and let the gladness of God be your greatest treasure. This is the mediator, the covenant of comfort, the true and better Moses, leading his people to the eternal Zion as they cross through the stormy seas of life and death on dry land. Stanza 3, verses 12 through 16. We're going to pick up the pace here. Stanza 3 features the return of the servant as the primary singer of the song, declaring that he is the one who brings comfort. Verse 12 is the central verse in the chapter. If you hang on to verse 12, get rid of the first 11 verses of the last 11 verses, you're left right in the dead center of this chapter with verse 12, which says, I, even I, am he who comforts you, comforts you. Hebrew literature is notorious. The longer you read the Bible and read it with some level of depth, you will find that Hebrew authors, Isaiah included, love to put the most important thing in the entire chapter right dead in the center of the portion of text. Any of my Hebrew guys in here know what I'm talking about. The more you read it, the more you realize this. And so we can look at this then, this idea of the, the comfort that comes from, From the servant, I, even I, am he who comforts you. That phrase is the clamp that holds this entire chapter together. And if you get nothing out of this sermon today other than this, get this. The servant is the one who brings comfort. Let's look at this idea of comfort. It's one of the most important ideas in all of God's word. It's captured in its, I think, most brilliant clarity, appropriately so, by Jesus himself. You're familiar with the phrase, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5 4. We see comfort all over the scriptures. Isaac was comforted. Jacob could not be comforted. Ruth was comforted by Boaz. Once we get to Isaiah, however, we turn the corner was like physical comfort. Someone has died, someone has passed away. For Jacob, he had lost Joseph, his favorite son. He couldn't be comforted. As we move into Isaiah and to some of the other prophetic books, we see comfort turning a corner into a spiritual reality rather than simply a physical or natural reality. And that's what's in view here. Chapter 40 of Isaiah contains probably the second most well-known usage of the word in the Bible. What does it say? Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. This becomes a major theme throughout the rest of the prophetic books and of course second corinthians has more density of the word comfort than any other book it has rightly been called the epistle of comfort so what does the servant mean when he declares that he is the one who comforts it means simply That when those who would seek Yahweh and pursue righteousness, back in verse 1, according to their own works and according to whatever it is that they could do, when they come to the end of their wits, when they come to the end of their creativity, when they come to the end of themselves, the servant is the one who reaches down into the darkness, into the grief, into the mourning, and what does he bring? Comfort. But this is not a natural comfort like one might be brought at the passing of a loved one or in particularly difficult circumstances. This comfort comes to those who mourn and grieve over sin and over the disparity of their own hearts. This comfort is for those who are repentant, who seek Yahweh in faith. And the promise of the servant is that this grief over sin would not go unsalved, but rather that he would personally provide The blessing of spiritual comfort, relief, and consolation for those who are broken over sin, both their own and that of others. We can therefore summarize by saying this. The comfort that the servant brings is the comfort of forgiveness. This is the comfort. This comfort is the relief that comes from knowing that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the consolation that comes in knowing that He in His obedient life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection has fully paid for all our sins and delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. This comfort is the assurance that comes in knowing that He so preserves us that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from His will. This comfort is the confidence that comes in knowing that according to His word and His will, all things will work together for our full and final salvation. When Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he spoke in fulfillment of Isaiah 51, 12. He is the servant arm of Yahweh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, your only comfort in life and in death this morning. Or do we cling to some lesser comfort, some lesser reality to bring this blessing to us? Do we rest in him or do we look to our job or our spouse or our family or our friends? All good things, gifts from God, but not what can bring true comfort in the midst of our grief and in the midst of our mourning. Only Christ can do that. He, even he, verse 12, is the one who comforts you. Our only hope is then to look to him in faith and receive the comfort that he offers and enter into the blessed joy of our master. But the servant anticipates our fallen human nature as he moves forward into verse 13. What is wrong with human nature so often? What are we afraid of? Not God, but of man. We're afraid of man who dies and of the Son of Man who is made like grass. The servant presses in to the to the foolish unbelief of our own hearts and he exposes the illogical behaviors that mark our doubt and unbelief. Listen to me this morning. It is folly, according to Isaiah 51, 12 and 13, to fear man. It is folly. Why? Man dies. He's like a piece of grass. In Southern California, we certainly know how fleeting and fragile a piece of grass can be. Contrast that transience of man, says the servant, with the eternity of Yahweh. Man is like grass. God made the grass. But the servant doesn't spend long pressing in on this folly. Verse 14 brings a promise of equal magnitude to the promise of verse 12. The one in chains will soon be set free and will not die in the pit, nor will his bread be lacking. The comfort of forgiveness is accompanied by the comfort of freedom and the comfort of fulfillment. We know what Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. A few verses later, if the Son sets you free, you are free. Indeed, what does Paul say? Having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And Paul again says, my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The covenant of comfort is a covenant of forgiveness, freedom, and fulfillment. And both Yahweh and his servant put their guarantee on it in verses 15 and 16. For I am Yahweh your God who stirs up the sea. Its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand. I have said to you, you are my people. God can swear by no one greater. So he swears by himself. This covenant, the freedom, forgiveness, and fulfillment that is found in it will stand. The question remains for us today. Will we receive it by faith? Stanza 4, 17 through 20, covenant wrath. We have seen time and time again that Isaiah presents salvation against the backdrop of judgment. God is most glorified when his salvation shines forth most brightly out of the dark backdrop of wrath and judgment. What does verse 17 say? Israel, both in the north and in the south, has drunk from the cup of God's wrath. He has sent powerful foreign kings and armies against them for their disobedience. In verse 17 and in verse 18, we see that they have reached their wit's end. There is no one to guide them. There is no one to lead them. Moreover, in verse 19, they have been befallen by devastation and destruction, by famine and sword, and there is no one to comfort and no one to console. Finally, in verse 20, the sons of Israel, which ought to be the source of their strength and future prosperity, have fallen helpless in the streets like a trapped animal. The wrath and rebuke of Yahweh has been poured out upon them. Yet, for those whom Yahweh has foreknown and called, the wrath and rebuke of God is not the end of the story. For apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Namely, the righteousness of faith offered in the servant arm of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. The wrath of God has certainly been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, But for Isaiah, God's wrath is not the end of the story. God's glory is demonstrated not only in judgment, but in the salvation that comes out of judgment. I can't put it any better than the Puritan poet John Milton, so I'll just leave you with what he said about this. Book three, Paradise Lost. In mercy and justice both, through heaven and earth shall God's glory excel. But mercy... First and last shall brightest shine. Which means that this servant song is not yet complete. Out of the judgment of stanza four comes the mercy of stanza five. Stanza five speaks of a great reversal of, Using colorful and descriptive language, the servant describes the removal of wrath from God's people and the outpouring of that wrath upon their enemies. Look how they are described in verse 21. Drunk, but not with wine, rather with the wine of affliction. As we saw in verse 17, they have drunk the affliction of God's wrath down to the dregs. They have consumed divine judgment like a goblet of cheap wine. And it has not gone down smooth, but it has gone down with terror and Affliction. But verse 22 then brings the gleam of hope. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my wrath. You will never drink it again. He comes to their defense. He contends for them like a holy attorney, ready to plead their innocence. In that moment, he he removes the cup of reeling, the chalice of wrath from their hand, and gives them a beautiful promise. You will never drink from this cup of wrath again. Instead, God's enemies will drink it the ones who have oppressed God's people and acted against them, persecuted, imprisoned, and killed God's servants, the cup of his wrath will ultimately be given to them. The covenant of comfort finds its fulfillment in this. God will have mercy. That cup is reserved for those who oppose God and who tread upon the backs of His people. It is reserved for those who are given over to their wickedness and sent to an eternity of God's wrath against their sin. But there remains a logical question mark here. The cup of God's wrath must be poured out on all who sin. If all have sinned, then all must drink this cup. Yet the servant says here that the cup will be removed from God's people and they will not drink it for eternity. How do we reconcile this? Isaiah and the servant are setting up for chapter 53. In order for the cup of Yahweh's wrath to pass from the lips of Yahweh's people, another must drink the cup. Surely, therefore, the servant bears our griefs, he carries our sorrows, The servant is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of God's wrath fell upon him. The servant arm of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, for the purpose that he might save to the uttermost all whom his father gave him, drank to the dregs the awful chalice, the fearful cup of God's wrath. And what did it cost? Let me show you. Do you see him? In the garden, kneeling down to pray, do you see him pleading, Father, is there another way? Do you see his soul in anguish, drops of sweat turned now to blood? Do you see the great shepherd yield to death, all for the sake of love? Echoes of the scriptures come down to the mind of our Savior as he prays in the garden. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Yahweh's cup of wrath must be drunk down to the dregs. For those outside of Christ, they drink their own cup, and they do so deservedly. But for those who are in Christ, he drank. He submitted to the will of his father, and he drank. He was kissed by the traitor Judas, and he drank. He stood unjustly accused before Pilate in the Sanhedrin, and he drank he was beaten and he drank they placed a crown of thorns upon his head and he drank he hauled the cross up golgotha hill and he drank he was mocked and spit upon and he drank he was the earth shook and he was drank the sky was darkened and he drank the father turned his face away and christ drank he cried it is finished and he drank he committed his spirit into the father's hand and he drank he yielded up his spirit and he drank the cup of god's wrath down to the dregs not one drop is left for you not one drop is left for me hallelujah what a savior What is left now for us?